If you have a Bible, turn with me to the Old Testament book of Esther. I find it very relevant because this is the story about how the people of God were persecuted. We're about to be annihilated. The ancient story of the Jewish people living in the great Persian empire. But in God's providence, one woman courageously risked her life. A Jewish woman named Esther who became the queen of Persia and used her position and her power to save the Jewish people. And there are many lessons that we've been learning over the last two months. And today we learn about what it is that leads us in the right direction living in a disconnected world, and what could keep us from going in the wrong direction. So today we're in Esther chapter 7, and as we've been doing over the last few weeks, I'm going to pray, I'm going to introduce the theme, and then we'll read through the text together. So let's pray this morning as we prepare our hearts for God's Word. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have been faithful to your people time and time again across time and space. And may we find encouragement today that in the midst of these times in which we're living, you continue to be faithful. And I pray that that truth would keep us or for some of us, place us on the right path and keep us from the wrong path. So Spirit of God, would you quicken and open our hearts As we open your word, speak to us as a community, speak to us as individuals. You know what we need to hear. We're inviting you to speak. We ask this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, in my humble opinion, movie spoilers are the worst. Anyone a fan of movie spoilers? I, I hate them. My kids do it all the time, especially my oldest. We're going to watch a movie. My oldest, she's already seen them all. She's like, oh, is that the one where everyone dies? And I'm like, really? You just spoiled it. However, I read an an article a while back called The Psychological Benefits of Movie Spoilers. It's a real article. It's hilarious. For some of us, movie spoilers are evil. However, the article states, if you know how the story ends you end up paying more attention to how the characters got there. After all, we not only read a book or watch a film to find out how it ends, we want to know how they got there. Nobody goes to see Romeo and Juliet or reads the book saying, wait, don't spoil it for me, because we all know everybody dies. Sorry, just spoiler alert. (laughs) If you didn't read it in, in high school. We not only want to know where the characters end up, We want to know how they got there. And this makes us reflective. What do we learn from where others end up and how they got there? Because if we pay attention to where others end up, we'll pay more attention to where we're headed and where we might end up. I say that because in Esther chapter 7, we come to a climax of the story for two of the main characters that we've learned about in this ancient book, Esther and Haman. Esther's narrative ends in victory. Haman's narrative ends in tragedy. And we're meant to ask when we get to this point, how did they end up in these places? What were the characteristics that led them there? And what are the lessons for us today? Where will we end up? And how will we get there? In the story of Esther, we've learned 
that this is a story about how one woman's courage saves the entire Jewish people from genocide. By way of reminder, King Xerxes ruled one of the most powerful empires in the history of the world. When the book opened, we learned that he deposed his first wife and chose Esther to be his new queen. At the time, he did not know that she was Jewish, and it probably wouldn't have mattered to him, except that as the story goes along, King Xerxes' right-hand man, Haman, an enemy of the Jewish people, obtained legal permission to annihilate all of the Jews. Esther finds out about this because of the evil intentions of Haman. They were made known because Haman ran into a man named Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, the man who refused to bow to Haman. It left Haman furious. And he orders this decree to kill all the Jewish people. What he doesn't know is his queen is also Jewish. Esther is in a situation, she has an opportunity. And we learn that she risks her life and she requests a banquet with not only the king, but also Haman. A banquet, a feast where she would make her plea to the king to spare the Jewish people from Haman's genocide. It was a huge risk. But here in Esther chapter 7, we learn where these characters end up. And at this feast, we not only find drama, but we also find lessons of what becomes of them and how. And if we listen this morning, we can learn about what it is that leads to victory, what it is that leads to tragedy. And by learning from what becomes of them, we might be able to learn what will become of us. And the first lesson that we learn is this. When we look at the life of Esther, in summary, we learn that faith will lead to victory. And that is good news. The crisis for the Jewish people has become personal for Esther. To the point where we learned in previous chapters that she risked approaching the king uninvited. A move which could have resulted in death. But it doesn't. And when the king asked her what she desired back in chapter 5, she bought herself some time. After all, this is a tricky situation because in bringing the needs of the Jewish people before the king, she will also be accusing the king's right-hand man, this man, Haman. So she buys herself some time. She strategically plans a feast with only the king and only Haman. And there, in a moment of courage, she lays it all out on the table. Look at verses 1 through 6 of Esther chapter 7. And so the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, Grant me my life, this is my petition, and spare my people, this is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. 
If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther said, an adversary and enemy, this vile Haman. Oh, the drama. It's just been building for the whole, you know, storyline. And we get to this moment and notice the wisdom that characterizes the way in which Queen Esther lays out her case. Which is quite remarkable because as we pointed out, or if you're just joining us this morning, what you would learn if you started from chapter one is with this person, Esther, we see a woman who actually goes from being passive to active. From a person who goes from being withdrawn to getting involved. A woman who experiences reawakened faith. And what happens here is Esther takes it upon herself to approach the king. She prepares this feast, inviting both Haman and the king himself. And the king, no doubt driven by curiosity, asks again, what is it that Esther wanted? And notice she doesn't only ask for her life. She asks to spare the lives of all her people. Her response demonstrates faith. Her response demonstrates how far she has come, how much she has grown. And there's two specific ways I want you to show, I want you to see how this this faith actually leads to victory. A place that you never thought she would have ended up when you start the story. When all the odds seemed to be against her. There are two particular aspects of this, this faith that I want to note in the life of Esther. It's important for us. Notice that her faith is a faith that led her to be identified with the people of God. That's what we see in the story. Earlier on, she was only concerned with her own life. Oh, if I go before the king, she told her older cousin Mordecai, like, I might be killed. But as she understands what's at stake, as she understands what it means to have faith in in God, it means to identify with his people. And she demonstrates that in verse three when she says, let not only my life be granted, but me and my people. Because at this point, the decree, the official publication from Haman to kill all the Jewish people went out throughout the empire, stating that it would be a matter of months before the Jewish people would be destroyed. And if I can just have you picture in your mind's eye In this moment, imagine a list, a long list with every Jewish man and every Jewish woman's name on it that are about to be destroyed. This is the moment in Esther chapter 7. If you can just imagine, Esther takes a pen and she walks up in front of the king and in front of Haman and she writes her name on that list. She says, I belong to these people. Make no mistake, to have faith in God, to have faith in Christ, is to belong to the people of God. The Bible knows nothing of solitary faith. 
If you are born again by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, you are born into a new family. I say that because in our culture, faith is often viewed as something completely private, a matter of personal preference. Like, hey, my faith is in Jesus and I'm good all by myself. I just like listen to podcasts in my living room, watch a little something online, never talk to or interact with any other, you know, Christians at all whatsoever. Like I take communion with myself and I'm good. (laughs) The Bible knows nothing of solitary faith. In fact, let's just push it a little farther. One of the key evidences that your faith in Jesus Christ is true and it is genuine is your willingness to love the people of God. Your willingness to identify with the people of God. I know in saying that, that this might be a hard thing for some of us. Because for some, it may be that your deepest wounds have actually come from the people of God. Your biggest frustrations have come as a result of other Christians. And you're like, really? I've got to identify with them? I have to like be in community with with them? And it would be very easy for us to say, especially in such a crazy, chaotic time as this in our cultural moment, it would be very easy to look at all the mistakes and the failures of other Christians and just say, you know what? My faith is more of a a private matter. And I don't want to associate with other believers. And we justify that perhaps because of the pain that we've experienced at the hands of other Christians. And I'd like to speak to that. First, I want to acknowledge this. That pain that you may have experienced from other Christians is real. And if I'm being honest with you this morning, I've experienced it myself. Some of the greatest wounds that I've experienced in my life have come at the hands of other Christians. I don't want to minimize that. I want to acknowledge it. It's a real thing. And yet... I say this with compassion, but also with conviction. The failure of other Christians will never be a good reason to stop loving them. And here's why. Because your love for other Christians was never based on how well or how badly they behave. It's based on what Jesus Christ has done for you. And it's based on what Jesus Christ has done for them. Notice, Esther doesn't go around in this book going, hmm, which of the Jewish people should I risk my life for? (laughs) Mm, You're practicing your faith. Okay, you're pretty good. You're nice. You don't bother me. Yep, I'll risk my life for you. uh, mm, Maybe not. Can I take them off the list? Like, notice the story doesn't say like, oh, king, will you spare my life and the life of these select individuals that I have curated on this, this, this list out of the Jewish people who are like, the ones that I like the most. She doesn't do that. She doesn't go around Persia asking which ones are are worthy. No. She identifies with the people of God. And whoever identified as belonging to God, she identified with them. 
Because this faith that leads to, to victory is a faith that identifies, is willing to identify with the people of God. But also, secondly, note that this is also a faith that leads her to risk being rejected for the people of God. It's not just a willingness to identify with them. As hard as that might be, like sometimes that means us having to say, yeah, I'm with them. <laughs> you know, when people complain about other Christians, your non-Christian friends are like, Christians are the worst. You're like, it's my family, <laughs> right? Because we're a family. Everyone's always like, oh, I wish the church was more like a family. I'm like, yeah. Do you have a family? Because mine was crazy. <laughs> Like, I don't know what ideal you had in your mind, but my brother and I basically beat each other up every day, you know, but he's still my brother. By the grace of God, we're both saved and we're both pastors. So, hey, praise God. <laughs> we don't beat each other up anymore. He'd win anyway, so whatever. He's my family. We're family. It's not just a willingness to identify with them, but also a risk of being rejected because of them. See, Esther is not living as though her faith is just a matter of picking and choosing some religious goods and services about what inspires her or benefits her. What a contrast to self-centered, individualistic, cultural faith. That attitude, I believe, is one of the greatest dangers to faith. But by way of contrast, this woman models purpose. She demonstrates selflessness, not with a private spirituality, but a public faith which she seeks and is willing to sacrifice for the good of others. And it shows us that it's not easy and it's far from comfortable and it's full of risks. She's willing to identify with the people of God and risk rejection for it. Notice there's no immediate or practical benefit for her. She probably could have gotten away with things because she was the, the queen. Her choice doesn't make things easier. And in that moment, she doesn't know what the outcome is, but it is an honor for her to be identified with the people of God. Friends, true and genuine faith that leads to, to the story ending in victory, that reveals growth, is a faith that identifies with the people of God. And as a church, especially now in this time, we need to be cultivating that. Remember the words of Jesus. This is so powerful. In the gospel according to John, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another on the basis of whether or not they deserve it. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> What's the reason? Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We need to confess this morning any ways in which we are picking and choosing which of the people of God we will love. Because it is not based on whether or not they deserve it in the same way that our own salvation is not based on whether we deserve it. Christ's love for you, his love for me. He didn't look down in this world and say, eh, I'm gonna save the deserving people. If that was the case, we'd all be doomed. But we're not. It's based on his character, his love, his willingness to sacrifice, his goodness, his beauty, his perfection, his atonement. It's all because of him that we are saved by grace. Amen? So now go love one another. 
is the instruction for us. For her, better to put herself in that position to identify with the people of God and all the risks that come with it than to go with the alternative. This faith is a faith that that leads in this trajectory of victory. But notice here there's a contrast put before us in dramatic form showing us that the alternative is horrendous. What do we learn about Haman? Well, we learn that idols will lead to tragedy. In Esther, we learn that faith leads to victory, but in Haman, we learn that idols will lead to tragedy. And I want to remind us, up until this moment, if you weren't aware of the inner workings of the story and you were just looking from the outside in, you might develop the perception that Haman had it all. Let me give you some examples. Haman was upwardly mobile. He was wealthy. He had a big family. Tons of friends who, it seems, were very close. He could confide in them openly, talk with them about anything. They all had his back. They were all for him. Like if Haman had a social media profile, like everyone's like, just like, Haman, like I'm with you, bro. Like he had a great community around him. He was successful. He had a lot of money. But it all turns in the end. Because Haman was an idolater. And as a result, Haman made evil choices. And it's because he ultimately put his trust in all the wrong things. And where does his life end? Verses 7 through 10. The drama continues. Remember the closing words of Esther is, that vile Haman, like, ooh. She's taking a risk there. What's the king going to do and how will Haman respond? Verses 7 through 10. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, which is a big deal for Xerxes, by the way, (laughs) and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed and to beg Queen Esther for his life. And just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. And the king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? And as soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching a height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. That's a pole, 75 feet high, by the way, twice the size of a telephone pole, FYI. He says there's a pole reaching to 50 cubits by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. I love that Harbonus just like, hey, there's a pole. (laughs) But he left the rest of the king. The king said, impale him on it. We told you there was a lot of impaling in the story. And so they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai. And then the king's fury subsided. We come to the end of Haman's story. And what is so clear and so obvious were the idols in Haman's heart. The empire was his idol. What he could get from the king was his idol. His status was his idol. His possessions were his idol. He trusted in King Xerxes. 
But Xerxes, as we have learned, was shallow and easily deceived and often self-centered. And yet this is where Haman placed his trust. And for a time, he seemed to get a lot out of it. But in the end, it all led to judgment. Haman put himself and his own people. That was his idol, which led him to great disdain for the Jewish people. And in the end, it all ends in tragedy. It all ends with judgment. And this is the downfall for everyone who builds and centers their lives on something other than God. That's what an idol is. And it's the tragedy of idolatry. See, we've talked a lot about idols in this series and it's appropriate for us. The Bible tells us that when you turn from God and trust in something else, for your salvation to give you ultimate worth, meaning, value, significance, and identity, that's an idol. The Bible doesn't tell you that if you turn from God and trust in an idol, you'll never experience some good things along the way. After all, Haman, if you asked him at different points in his life, how's it going, Haman? He's like, great. The Bible doesn't say if you trust in an idol, you'll never experience any kind of good thing in this life. But what it does tell us is that even those good things will never save you. And they will not have the last word. What the Bible does tell us is that you, if you are trying to enjoy life, disconnected from the author of life, then you will end up without life. That's what scripture says. Haman lived to feed and serve his pride. And for a while, it seemed to serve him well. But in the end, it consumed him. He placed power, prestige, and position in the place of God. And I want you to notice even how the narrative is written. He was impaled on the very pole that he built for someone else. So on the one hand, Haman's demise is under the sovereign hand of God. And yet, on the other hand, he is responsible for his own downfall because idolatry will always lead to destruction. This is also true of eternal judgment. Anyone who rejects God and ends eternally separated from God the day that they die will be ultimately responsible for their own fate. C.S. Lewis famously said that hell, the door to hell, is locked from the inside. When you give your worship to anything other than God, it will not free you, it will enslave you, and ultimately ruin you. Things might seem to go well for a time, even if you're not trusting in God. But there's a couple of truths that need to be stated this morning as we're looking at Haman. And one of the truths is this. Never mistake God's silence for his approval. Before I was a Christian, living my own particular brand of a sinful life, I assumed that because lightning bolts weren't coming down from heaven that I was good. I would like do an evil thing, nothing happens, I'm like, cool, I'm good. Go sin, I'm like nothing happened. Like, you know, the kid that kind of like, touches the thing, the, the, the cookie jar, like, touch, okay, there's no trap. 
My parents don't have like the Nest cameras on, you know, like I'm, I'm good. Apparently I can take a cookie, no consequences. That's how it was for me. And there might be some who are living in that way, like, hey, I'm good. And what's worked for me so far will probably work for me forever because right now I'm good. Some of you this morning may have turned from God or you've never turned to him at all. And yet there's no lightning bolts for you. Things might seem to be going well at the moment. You've got a good job. You've got the, the money, the relationships you need. But friend, if that's you, do not mistake God's silence for his approval. God's silence is actually his patience. Calling for you, waiting for you. And the fact that you're here right now is his appeal to you to turn to him. Never mistake God's silence for his approval. But there's a second truth. Whatever success an idol gives you, never mistake it for true security. Haman's tragic end highlights the heartbreaking and ultimately disastrous end for whoever places their trust in an idol. It will not end well. The Bible tells us that it will end in eternal separation from him. Now, a person's downfall may, of course, not be as nearly as dramatic as Haman's. But if we trust in what we can find in this life alone, what confidence do we have beyond the grave? Haman's life displays this in a dramatic way. Idols will always break the heart. They'll promise everything and in the end give you nothing. Haman placed his trust in the wrong king. If you're placing your trust in the wrong king this morning, this is God's loving wake-up call to you. Maybe you're a Christian and you know that you're engaging in these patterns of sin and you're like, that's fine. I've, I've lost nothing yet. That's not God's approval. That's his patience. He calls to you. He loves you. He says, turn back. Don't harden your heart to me. And if you haven't placed your trust in Jesus, this is God saying to you, I brought you here for a purpose. I brought you here to hear good news that you can be saved and that you can have eternal life with me. Turn from sin. Don't trust in those idols. They'll never save you. Trust in Jesus Christ today and be saved. And your life will not end in tragedy. It will end in victory. And that is true for everyone who places their trust in Jesus. And that's actually the last point. What we need is the faithfulness of Jesus. Idols, though, always break to the heart. Faith, genuine faith, will lead to victory. Why? Because Christian faith is trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. Though God is never mentioned in the book of Esther, we said in the beginning that he's silhouetted, working behind the scenes to bring about a miraculous deliverance against all the odds for the Jewish people. And I want you to know this, even the enemies 
of the Jewish people, they knew this story. They knew about the faithfulness of God. I want to highlight this. Haman's wife, in a previous chapter, even acknowledged this. You might remember Esther chapter 6, verse 7. She says this, along with Haman's friends, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. If you're watching this, like, you know, on Netflix, you hit pause. You're like, whoa. Haman's wife and his friends all knew, they knew the story of the Jewish people, which is the story of God. Oh, hey, he's one of the people of God, and God always comes through for them. Which, by the way, it's crazy at times when even us as Christians, we don't have faith in God, and even unbelieving people are like, hey, isn't your God faithful? And you're like, oh, right. <laughs> don't you believe in a God who's always faithful? You're like, right, you're right. <laughs> The most incredible part of God's plan here is that even though opposition arises, and even though the people of God at the beginning of the story are often compromised and flawed, God still accomplishes his work. Or let's put it another way. It was possible for the people of God to be confident back then that Haman's plan to destroy them would never ultimately win. But, and this is a very important point, not solely because of their confidence in Esther, nor in King Xerxes. Mordecai acknowledged this in an earlier chapter, the faithfulness of God. Chapter 4, verse 14, when he's pleading with his younger cousin, Esther, to make a case before the king, and she's struggling when she's like, I don't know if I should do it. He says this, for if you, Esther, remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Remember that? Mordecai's like, look, even if you don't do it, it's going to happen because God's the one that does it. It's going to come. So for us, why should we be confident about where we will end up? And here's the answer. Because we have a God who always keeps his promise. We have a God who always keeps his promise. And we see his ultimate faithfulness to us in the gospel, in his son, Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is a king who is far different than King Xerxes. Jesus need not, cannot be manipulated or deceived or coerced. He is righteous and always does what is right. But it goes beyond that. Jesus is a king who instead of being concerned with his own interests, has looked out for our interests. And instead of making us pay for our idolatry, Jesus took the charges upon himself when he was crucified publicly on a cross 2,000 years ago where he died for our sin. And on that day, Jesus attached his name to the fate that we deserve so that we could get the fortune that he deserves. It was as if 2,000 years ago when Jesus died, he went up to that list with all of our names on it, our list of condemnation. He crossed it all out and put his name there and says, I'm gonna die on their behalf. It's faith in him that leads to growth and victory in the end because faith is about trusting in the faithfulness of God. So this morning as we respond and as we worship, 
Here are a few reasons that you can be confident about where you're ended, where you're going to end up and how you can get there. Encouragement for your heart. And the first is this, his faithfulness redeems your past. Some of you might struggle with your past thinking, oh no, I don't know if my story is going to end well because look at what I've done in the past. Brother or sister, if that's you, you need to know God's faithfulness has never depended on the perfect faithfulness of his people. Never has. Read the Bible. The Bible's full of history of God bringing about his perfect work through imperfect people. Now, this does not mean that we should throw aside our responsibility or the call to obedience. No, in fact, his love and his faithfulness drives us towards this. It actually motivates us. But the point is this, even when we fall or we flounder or we fail and don't get it right, God is faithful. His redemptive work is based on his character and his ability. And that's why the Apostle Paul said to young Pastor Timothy, if we are faithless, God remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And that's good news. His faithfulness redeems our past. Secondly, his faithfulness secures your future. You worried about the future? Don't be. If your faith is in Jesus, you can have hope for the future because of what Jesus Christ has done in the past. He died, but he rose again and he lives right now forever to intercede for us and he's gonna come again and he's gonna make everything right and he's gonna bring you with him. He's gonna raise you up in glory and on that day, when you say, or if you were to say, how did I end up here? Your answer is not going to be because you got it all right. Your answer is going to be because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that leads to the third thing right now. His faithfulness empowers your present. Right here, right now, God is faithful on your behalf. What an encouragement for us, friends. Church, we do not have the wisdom, the power, or the strength to do and be all that God wants us to do and to be in the year 2020 on. If hope rested on our own ability, we should shut the doors of Reality Ventura today. And I'd be the first to do it and lock it. But the good news is it doesn't rest on us. It rests on the power of God. It rests on the power of the Holy Spirit. It rests on God's ability to change us, transform us, use us, and work through us, and even at times in spite of us, and that's good news. And that's why conviction is a good thing. That's why the Holy Spirit awakens us to this awareness of any area where we're trusting in the wrong thing. So this morning, if you're turning away from him, maybe even if things are going well right now, this is God's wake-up call to you to turn back to him. Confess and repent. Receive his forgiveness that was secured through the cross. Because it was there on the cross that all the righteous wrath of God was poured out on Jesus because of our sin. And that means there's nothing left for us to pay. We can be forgiven. We can be confident that he's going to give us power and love and acceptance today. Not because of our faithfulness, but because of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that's why the book of Hebrews chapter 12 says this wonderful little sentence. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, 
who, what does he do? He's the author and the finisher of our faith. He's the one who begins it. He's the one that sustains it. And in the end, he's the one that completes it. What encouragement for us today where we struggle against sin or we're struggling for maturity or to make the right decisions. It does not lie in our ability to perform, but the power of God. So this morning, where do we need to confess our misplaced trust? Let's do that this morning. In what area do we need to just have faith in the sovereignty of God? In what area this morning do we just need to rest in the faithfulness of Jesus? I don't know what situation you're in right now, but the Holy Spirit wants to put courage and truth into your heart. What area do you need to rest in the faithfulness of Jesus? And it's because of him, you and I don't have to say, if I have found favor when we approach this king, we can say, since I have favor, because you have favor because of Jesus. So right now, I'm gonna invite you to pray, worship, take communion, respond. But as we come to God, it's not if I find favor, it's because I have favor in Jesus Christ. And that's good news, amen. Father, we ask right now that these truths would sink down into our hearts. Pray that if there is any way in which we're placing our ultimate trust in the wrong things, that you'd wake us up that we would turn from those things, just say, God, I've just been putting my ultimate trust in other things, but today I declare that you are my savior. I declare that you are the one who brings about victory. You are the author and finisher of my faith. And I thank you that there's forgiveness because you've secured it for me through the gospel. We don't have to come and worship you this morning saying, if I find favor, but since I've found favor, so, Father, I pray that we'd all just be absolutely liberated and free to respond today, not because we've been faithful, but because you've always been faithful and you always will be. If there's anyone this morning who hasn't trusted in you, I pray that right now they would take this moment to say, Jesus, save me. I trust in what you've done for me, dying for my sins and rising again on the third day to give me new life forever. I believe in you. May they pray that right now, Lord, and know your salvation. And as we respond right now, may your Holy Spirit move. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Friends, I invite you to respond. Where is it that you need to rest in the faithfulness of Jesus? Come up and pray. There's going to be men and women to my right and to my left up here. They're wearing the prayer lanyards. Just come up. It might be for your marriage, a practical need, a situation, a conversation that you have to have, your finances. I don't know what it is, but come up and just say, I want to play. I just want to put a stake in the ground this morning, and I want to say, I'm resting everything. I'm banking everything on the faithfulness of Jesus in my life and in this area. So I invite you to be bold and come up and just to pray into that. Where is it that you need strength? Where is it that you need healing? Where is it that you need guidance and direction? Come and let us pray. And let's worship freely. Come down to the carpets. You can kneel, lift your hands to the king who loves you. I invite you to take communion if you're a believer this morning to come and 
take the bread and drink the cup, remembering Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. And when you do lift up that cup and say this morning, you could say it out loud, even sing it, not if I have found favor, but since I have found favor, I'm coming to you through Jesus Christ. Let's declare that today in song and in our response. And let's watch what the Holy Spirit will do. Amen? Let's do that now.